Welcome everyone to a new episode of Storybound. This week on the show, we're joined by Paul Lisicki, who will be reading an excerpt from his latest memoir, Later, My Life at the Edge of the World. Paul is the author of five books. He's received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment of the Arts, and he teaches in the MFA program at Rutgers University Camden. Paul's work has been praised everywhere, from the New York Times and Slate to the Los Angeles Times and the Boston Globe. He will be joined by Jordan Warmack for an original musical composition. All right, let's start the show. Hi, this is Paul Asicki, and you're listening to Storybound. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Agglomerate. I'm your host. Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear Paul Asicki read from his memoir later, My Life at the Edge of the World, joined by an original composition with Jordan Warmack. Dream House. We're out in the driveway, my mother and I leaning against my little red car. September 30th. It's the first morning in months when it's possible to stand outside and not be wrecked by the heat. 1,400 miles to go, 21 hours. A stop in Beaufort, South Carolina, another in White Marsh, Maryland. We'd known this day was coming since March 1st, when the writing coordinator phoned to tell me I'd been offered the fellowship, a seven-month residency in Provincetown. We've had plenty of time to take in the good news, but the day of my departure still seems to come out of nowhere. It is bad timing, but isn't it always? The good news flattens us, as if we've both come down with the flu, passed it between us on the coolest, 
driest morning since April. My mother looks back at the house, the tile roof, the arched window, the date palms sprawling over the tight, pineapple-shaped trunk. The lawn glistens. Sprinkler heads relax after hissing out water. She is probably telling herself it's the house she'd always wanted, the house she'd invoked in a subversive challenge to my father. When you see me lying in the casket, do you want to say, I never bought her that house? So he bought the house, and to punish her, holds on to the New Jersey house, lives there alone amid a slop of bills, newspapers, and out-of-date engineering books, and only comes down for a 10-day stretch every six weeks. She rubs her hands, arthritis twisting her forefinger, which she occasionally shows me just so she has a witness. I've only been back eight months since grad school, but it's also been a lifetime as if I'd never left home and known what it is to have an adult life. She won't let me know how much she loves me, won't say how much she's going to miss having someone to talk to, but instead channels those feelings into lists, asking me if I've packed a razor, toothbrush, deodorant, contact lens solution, contact lens case, comb, dental floss, Q-tips, band-aids, blunt tip scissors, all the items so easy to pick up at a chain. She is driving me nuts, know she is, but can't stop. Terrified of silence, she's lost her famous ability to laugh and listen, laugh and listen, laugh and listen. Not so long ago, on a trip to Morrison's cafeteria, she talked incessantly for the full 20-minute drive. I blew up and told her it was wrong to keep a running monologue, selfish, not to leave any space for my response. Her face went red, as if I'd seen right into her liver and heart. She knew what I saw. Someone who had lost her friends, someone who told them her secrets, and thus she withdrew, were they from her, as if direct talk about, say, her dead twin brother or her gay son named after him were too much for anybody to take. I cannot be her husband. She must know I can't no, I can't accompany her to Home Depot forever. Pour shock into the hot tub, fertilize Bougainvillea by the down spot. But does she say she can take care of herself on her own? That would be expecting too much. She puts her arms around me, so I will feel the consequence in my body, the consequence of her losing once again. And I hug her back even harder in my attempt to do the impossible, push dark feelings out of her and leave light in their place. Maybe, she thinks, why should he get all the freedom I don't have? Go to grad school, come back home, go off for a fellowship. Why should his happiness spring from, depend upon, my disappointment? What kind of logic is that? What kind of logic? Laugh and listen. Laugh and listen. Do you think I'm going to die, Mom? Is that why you're sad? I want to say it, but don't. It would be cruel to go down those roads. I 
suppose her heart wouldn't be so broken if I were headed to Arizona rather than Provincetown. Over the years, our family has twice visited Provincetown, and we know what draws people there. We've walked among the queer people on the street, heard them laughing, carousing, seen the signals passed between them. She is afraid of my living among my kind, especially now that so many young men are dying of AIDS. She is expecting me to die of AIDS. My mother. If I were studying my mother in a story, if I could step back from all my hot feelings, I could admit she still saw all the parts of me I've obliterated. The boy too anxious to eat his tiny sandwich on pumpernickel, pumpernickel. The boy cowering before his teenage babysitter after she'd taken off all his clothes. My mother must know I can be strong. And if she cannot help trying to beat some of that strength out of me, it's probably not just to keep me close, though that's a part of it. She wants me to know that I can't lose my vigilance. She knows how easy it is to slip from one category to the next, health to illness, blind routine to misery. One minute she was a teenage girl working her finger into a hole in the floor, and the next minute, miles away, her father lifted his shotgun to his head and clicked. I start the car, my eyes floody, burning. Tears drip off my chin onto my shirt and shorts. It's quite possible she won't be all right. She isn't going to kill herself, I know that much. She isn't going to drink herself into a stupor. Nothing as extreme as all that, or even as rebellious. Her own killing will be softer. She doesn't believe in spectacular gestures, doesn't believe she deserves them. She does what people do all the time, not making new friends, not allowing herself to be known, to be known, eating too much ice cream, to be known, no exercise, to be known, watching daytime talk shows that don't even capture her attention. Life is pure endurance instead of the hard, hard work of finding interests that refresh and nourish her. She's been on another kind of suicide, but no one ever uses that word because it is continuous, cuts too close to home. Who doesn't want to try to kill herself at least once in her life, in a bad patch? You wouldn't be a human being if you didn't go there. I love you, she says. I love you too, I say, very much. And I think it's time we tell each other a joke. Joke, she says managing the impossible, tearing up while laughing. We're getting a little too serious, the both of us, don't you think? And that stops her. The old, pretty mother, the warm, dark-haired mother of the deep red lipstick flashes before me and goes, who is this other mother in her place? I'm not as bad as I seem right now. I'm just exhausted. You must know that, don't you? We'll be just fine. You promise? She grimaces now. You could sound a little more enthusiastic. 
I'll call you after I get to the motel. Don't forget now, she cries, as if I would ever forget. The music you were listening to in this episode was created by Jordan Warmack. And now for a commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Paul Lisicki and Jordan Warmack. And now we return from our commercial break. I drive through pines and palmetto scrub, past lit signs taller than skyscrapers, a pink building in the shape of a huge sombrero, a dreamy wide river lined with moss-hung trees, the kind of river about which my father would say, I'd like to buy property there. The kind of river you might choose to drown in if you found yourself in that frame of mind. At a later point, I'll see my mother's rage as her strength, this refusal to regulate her sadness, this no to taming taming the inner animal of hurt. She must know this rage eats her alive, but that doesn't mean she doesn't want to soothe it, pet it, loosen its collar, and give it all the biscuits it needs. I deserved better, barks the glorious animal. I should have gotten more, and it runs around and around in circles, looking for a way out of the fence, and it never gives up. But I'm in no place to see that right now. I am all blind spots. I'm trying to be selfish, even though it feels like my left half is gradually being torn away. To steady myself, I conjure up a scene in which we're both undergoing surgery. Painkillers, only when required. Two, utopian. If you're lucky in your life, a place or two will be offered to you. That place won't be where you were born or grew up. It will be at some distance and it will never be yours. You'll always be a visitor or guest. The trees will smell like rain. They might stay green all year or their leaves might start browning in July as cool weather comes soon to these parts. Animals will be nearby, some of them in those trees or right out in the open yard. The air will taste of ocean, negative ions churned up by the surf. Or be so hazy, your eyes will tear up and burn on sunny days. And you'll be fine with that. 
This place will give you things denied you in your place of growing up, company when you're in need of it, solitude when you're exhausted by careful, polite conversation without jokes. It will make you feel smarter than you are. It will make you younger, sturdier, more flexible in your joints and muscles. People treat each other better here, all of them, at all levels. And maybe there aren't even any levels, all the old ways we use to divide and rank one another. The lives of animals are important too, not for human use, but for themselves, in themselves. Complex societies that care about their communities and want to stay alive as much as we do. You love this place like a person you can't stop making love to. You dream about this person when they're right in front of you. You move through its streets and paths, aroused and alert. You can't get that mischievous smile off your face. You want to put your hands on it, that place, that whole place. You have a secret. And isn't it lucky that everyone else on the street shares that secret with you? In pictures from that time, it looks like my body and brain aren't speaking to each other. Certain parts ignore the other parts, and the ribs, lats, obliques, the shallow channel above the tailbone, they don't believe they matter. I expect clothes to do all the work of identity, as does practically everybody. In the era of AIDS, clothes are enormous. They function as armor or drag. They bestow power, but also swallow up whoever pulls them over their heads. Maybe the greatest taboo involves drawing attention to the body, as so many are losing theirs, waking up to find their wrists thinner, chests marked with spots and scale. And yet my longing to stand out through a pattern or a color is so strong I can't help but get it wrong. Pent-up desire makes me a little nuts. It makes me porous, warps my perception. Weird words come out when I don't expect them to. Desire flushes me with shame, the kind of shame I want to rub out of my skin until it relaxes. The real me is not here, but in the future. Not here, in the future. Not, not here, not here, not here, in the future. And yet I've done everything possible to prolong childhood and delay adulthood or to make sure that that future doesn't happen. I've gone from grad school to grad school, slept with three guys before I was 28. And that's all about HIV? The fear of? Too simple. I didn't hold you enough when you were a baby, said my mother the evening before I left. We sat at the kitchen table shucking corn into a brown shopping bag. Immediately, she looked like she wanted to take it back, even though her face also said she was giving me a gift, an act of tenderness she tried to pass on but couldn't. For a second, I felt it pour through me. Everything is explained. But then the room felt warm, too warm. 
She'd given me power over her by letting out a deeper secret. She was afraid of me. Even when I was a 10-pound baby, my mother was afraid of me. Camera. Years back, I memorized all the fellows' names, but the names mean less to me now than the group photo in the old brochure. It's a scrappy bunch, peacoats and scruff and chapped hands and muddy boots. They stand outside a shambly, cedar-shake building officially known as the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. Each person looks on the way too important, but not self-important. They're too confident and wry and full of possible humor. They don't look burdened by their pasts, maybe because they're making work out of those burdens. They're bound by something ineffable, the gut sense that they're transforming their lives, involved in a task that matters. And they have company while they're doing it. They're a version of a family, too, though I doubt they even know this about themselves until the photographer lifted the camera. Legs press against legs, arms toss over shoulders. And now I will be in the picture. Circus. The car climbs the hill, and at the top, wild space opens up ahead. And there it is, rising out of the water like a question, an illusion across marsh and platinum lake. The Pilgrim Monument, a 25-story replica of a tower in Siena. The curved coast of the harbor, shining. The spray of boxy white cottages along the beachfront. Fishing boats, sailboats, boats of all types, pinned to the surface like thumbtacks. Up Route 6, I've been driving in deepest New England, charming and astringent, or through a version of my childhood woods thick with pitch pines. And from here, it's a tree-shorn city, stranger because I haven't driven toward a city in hours. Not since Fall River. Who would ever tell that it's all of three blocks wide, three miles long, a long, reclining anaconda of a place? And maybe that's why every attempt to lay it out comes up short. Every representation stretches out into failure. The temptation is to paint it gold and deep green because that's what it stirs up in me. Safety, connection, expression. But Provincetown is neither warm nor cold. And it's never in between. A simultaneity of masks, a place constantly shifting like the light and the dunes. What should I expect of a town built on dunes? I make the left turn onto Conwell Street. I pull into the parking lot between two buildings, one long and relaxed, the other stubby. A barn with a blue circular plaque on the shingles. No one's around but for a young woman with hunched shoulders carrying pots and pans from her car to a doorway. I loiter in the car for a minute, head down, moistening my dry lips. Why is my pulse racing? Maybe she'll go away. When she leaves, I walk into the office, friendly, tight handshakes. 
Michael, Robert. I tell myself I cannot forget their names, and then I instantly forget their names. The person in charge passes a key into a tiny manila envelope, along with a handout of instructions. I want them to think they've made the right choice by inviting me here. Maybe if I'm sweet enough, funny enough, they won't know that I'm a fraud, that it takes me hours to put the simplest paragraph together, that I distract myself from my work as soon as the writing goes well, and I'm too flustered to sit down at my desk for more than 20 minutes at a time. I pop open the hatchback. Suitcase, duffel bag, boxes of manuscripts, floppy disks, envelopes of positive rejections, which I think of as my hall of shame. I trudge up the steps, their thin, carpeted treads, running up and down, up and down. Somehow I manage to empty the hatchback in five minutes flat. I sit cross-legged on the floor of my long, narrow space, the second floor of a Cape Cod. One window to the north, the other to the south. Dormer in the living room. Strip of kitchen fixtures to one side. Narrow bedroom. Single twin bed up against the wall. Only enough room to fully stand up within three feet of either side of the ceiling peak. A boxcar. A monk space. A little disappointing, to be frank, with just a hint of Florida on the air. By Florida... I mean mildew, flat soaps, and squat motel glasses trapped inside a waxed sleeve. Not the Florida of the present, my parents' house. The music you were hearing in this episode was created by Jordan Warmack. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Paul Asicki and Jordan Wormack. And now for our final chapter. I lie on the bare mattress, fully dressed, look up at the ceiling. Something singes my eyebrows. Or is it just death grabbing at me, the voice of my mother pulling me down, down, why has my father run away? I want something that isn't directly in front of me, which translates itself to desire. Desire is a condition I can manage. Though the night is quiet, crickets, sitcom laughter from a wide open window, I can't sit still, can't sit still. There is a town out there, a circus, and I have been dead too long. movie. It's October, and life is about to change for all living forms, animals, humans, plants. Town seems less like the beach towns of my childhood and behaves more like a metropolis. The harbor is secret, tough to find. The openings narrow and few, smelly, weedy, industrial. No settler could have predicted tourism. Who'd ever want to visit the windiest place on the East Coast? Where loose sand once buried the houses to their eaves. It must have made sense to wall off the water 
to shut down the view. For mariners and fishermen, the sea was work, the life they wanted to get away from. That sea could murder you too. So the street means more than it does in other places by the sea. Commercial street is as wide as a rural drive, constrained on either side by stores. It pretends it's a boardwalk, but has no open horizon to calm frenetic minds. People don't disappear. People are larger here. Voices, faces, gestures, the cuts of jeans, shirt patterns. Clothes appear to be chosen experimentally, expect to be remembered, recorded. Commercial street purring with the expectations of a catwalk, even when there's no one awake to spy, interpret, pass on what they've seen. Haven. How far has my life been from my body, my breathing, my posture, my silliness, my joy? I stand up straighter. My shoulders fall backward, as if they've been held up for too long by pulleys and strings. My walk changes, too, or so I imagine. My heels strike the pavement, as if I'm possibly damaging my feet. This is what power feels like, but only when power is spread evenly, or when queerness isn't othered, but is central. I look at people's faces, People look back at me, not exactly with need, but curiosity. Who are you? And never the stench of judgment. No expressions that say ugly, weak, failure, get out, go back to your country, I'm going to rape you. To be freed from the day-to-day -day expectation that someone's out to kill you, the air alive with released human energy. But how will I ever be able to leave this haven so far from the repression and punishments of adulthood? Am I trapped in sweetness now? I've been given the cake of the afterlife, and I can't help but taste the chemical on my tongue. Mystery. From now on, I'll call it town. In that way, I'll keep it a mystery, take it back from all my old associations, commercial, poetic, a visual artist's capital of light, anything too sociological, anything known. Town as much a myth of community as a place attached to the earth. Town embedding a notion of how to live with one another, even if it's falling short of its ideals. Yes, failing on a daily level and still going on. Town moves on two tracks at once. Time of narrative, in which people want things and lose things. And lyric time, which has nothing to do with the clock. It floats, and it isn't quite attached to town, but is part of its structure. What draws people here, whether they realize it or not? Clock time moves forward, but lyric time moves off to the side and stalls. Lateral, instead of linear. It's time as enacted in a painting or a poem or a song. It was around before humans, and it will exist long 
after humans are gone. Who knows where I am now, and now, and now. Though I love music that shifts rhythms, tears up the harmonic structure, and changes key just as things get safe, I'm probably drawn to these qualities because I'm more attached to the grid than I know. A north-south directional attunement that lets me guess the time and temperature within a shade or two of the exact reading. But there's no grid here, at least not one aligned with the compass. West means as much as south. It's like living inside Joni Mitchell's Hijira, in which the guitar is retuned to preposterous notes, and I'm left to find the chordal shapes on my own. Thank you to Paul Lisicki for reading this week. Thank you to Morgan LaRocca from Grey Wolf Press, Michael Takens from Broadside PR, Kathleen Conti, and Tucker Dalton from CDM Studios. And thank you, thank you, thank you to Jordan Warmack for providing the music in this episode. You can look up Jordan Warmack by just going on Spotify. Type in Wiston and Warmack. That's W-H-I-S-T-O-N, Wiston and Warmack, W-A-R. M-A-C-K. You might have heard their music before in the second episode of the first season with Lydia Yuknovich. You can actually hear Jordan Warmack singing on that episode. And thank you to Tim Carplus for mixing this episode. Thank you to Jordan Aaron for production help. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Justin Alvarez of LitHub and Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. What's going on next week? Well, we got Noah Alvarez reading from his memoir, Spirit Run. Find us on Instagram at StoryBoundPod. Don't forget to subscribe. New episodes are released every Tuesday. See you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.